2: Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're going to talk about John G. Payton, missionary to the New Hebrides, John G. Payton was born in 1824 in Scotland. He was the oldest of 11 children, and he spent most of his life raised in a three-room cottage. And he would talk about the most precious room in the house was the closet where his father went to pray. One thing you'll see as you read through his autobiography, or if you know anything about his childhood, his parents' devotion to the Lord was something that was profoundly impactful to him. He would often talk about his father coming out of the prayer closet, his face shining, you know, being so filled with love for the Lord. His father had a heart for missionary service. He loved the Lord. He loved missionaries, loved ministry. But he himself was never able to enter the ministry. So instead, he prayed one day that his sons would be sent in his stead. Peyton writes this about his father and about his own conversion. Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory, were blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet. And hearing still the echoes of those cries to God would hurl back all doubts with victorious appeal. He walked with God, why may not I? It was his parents' passionate love of God that kindled in him from a very early age this desire for missionary service. Peyton says that often as they finished family devotions, I used to look at the light on my father's face and wish I was like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers I might be privileged and prepared to carry the blessed gospel to some portion of the heathen world. And I want to share with you guys another story about his mother's faith. And it's it's kind of rare that we actually get two parents that are both equally devoted to God. And we get to hear about that because usually it's, you know, one parent or the other. It's rare that we get to see both together. And it's even rarer that it's actually documented. He tells the story that one year the harvest was just absolutely terrible. There was nothing to feed the family with. There was no money and no food. And if you think about it, this is a family of 11 kids. They know how to stretch things, right? So if there is nothing to eat, there is absolutely nothing to eat. So imagine having 11 children to feed and then tucking them into bed with empty bellies. And that would be, as a parent, you know, a terrifying prospect. But instead of wringing her hands and breaking down, their mother tells the children not to worry. She had told God everything and they would have food in the morning. And the next morning, knowing nothing of the family's circumstances, their grandfather sends along a bag of new potatoes, ground meal, and some homemade cheese, plenty of food for a large family to survive. And John's mother, seeing the children surprised for how God had answered her prayers, had them kneel down with her on the ground to thank God for his goodness. And she said this, O my children, love your heavenly Father. Tell him in faith and prayer all your needs, and he will supply your wants. So far as it shall be for your good and his glory. I really like the phrasing she uses here. So far as it shall be for your good and his glory. I think that's a really important thing to remember and to think about in our lives because often we get caught up in, you know, what we want. you know what we need. And here's an important reminder that God will supply your wants. So far as it shall be for your good and his glory. These two things working together. Peyton had one of these early lives where he did just about everything under the sun. I mean, you name it, he did it. And we could take a full episode just talking about the jobs he had before he became a full-time overseas missionary. But we're not going to do that. As I said earlier, John knew from an early age that God had called him to full-time ministry. He just wasn't sure where, but he wanted to be ready. And so he tells this story about being really excited, he's heading off to seminary for the first time, and his father walked with him for the first six of the 40 miles to the train station. And he relates this story. My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are as fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then, whenever memory steals me away to that scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on in almost unbroken silence. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when their eyes met each other in looks, for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hands firmly for a minute in silence, and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could, and when about to turn a corner in the robe where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then, hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God— to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. It is deep gratitude which makes me here testify the memory of that scene not only helped to keep me pure from the prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies, that I might not fall short of his hopes, and in all my Christian duties that I might faithfully follow his shining example. Before the end of his first year in seminary, he had to drop out. It sounds like he comes down with bronchitis or something like that because he says he was coughing up blood and he also talks about how he recovered but a classmate was unable to do things and passed away, you know, a few years later. And when John recovers, he quickly re-enrolls but runs out of money. And he was so desperate that he almost sold all of his books to make ends meet. But instead he sees an ad for a teacher at the Mary Hill Free Church School And the school is an absolute disaster. He gets the job and the first thing he's handed is a cane. And he's warned he's going to have to use it an awful lot. And that's not really what you want to hear on day one of your first job, right? Now it's going okay for a while until this couple starts showing up to classes. And they just start causing a ton of trouble. They pull all kinds of chicanery and nonsense. And Peyton tells the man in particular to knock it off or get out of class. And instead, this guy, who's quite a powerful guy, you know, he's a he's a farmhand, you know, he's got quite a bit of bulk, he mocks Peyton and settles into a fighting stance. So Peyton sighs, calmly walks over to the door, locks it, and promptly sorts the guy out. The guy sits down exhausted and defeated and opens his book to study. And there were no more problems after that. In fact, the school just grew and grew until Peyton was replaced with someone with more education experience. The parents and students threw him a going-away party that he cherished because it was thrown by the very same students who had given him so much trouble early on. I want to point out in these stories that we're going through in this episode that you can clearly see how God is preparing him to go to the New Hebrides and to the people and how the hardships he's going to face there as well. The day before he set to leave the school, he receives a letter asking him to interview for a position as a city missionary at the Glasgow City Mission. It's not ideal living situations. Many of these people lived really hard, rough lives, and so they were hardened, roughed-up people. And the areas Peyton ministered to were filled with hardened atheists, lapsed Catholics, and drunkards, many of whom hadn't been visited by a minister or gone to church in over 20 years, if they ever had. After one year of working there, there were only about six or seven regular meeting attendees. They met once a week on the ground floor of a poor but industrious Irish woman. She made a living selling coals. And her husband was also hard working, but he was a powerful drinker. And he spent every penny he had and pawned everything he owned or could get a hold of. He also abused and beat his wife. And through her many tears and prayers and overhearing the meetings from upstairs, he became a believer he then began to encourage others to come to the meetings. He and his wife invited any and all people into their home, and the two almost single-handedly grew the meetings until they were too large to be held in homes anymore. This here is an incredible story to me because it's not the first time we hear something like that happen. You have it in this story, and then it also reminds me, I, I, I come back to Gladys a lot, guys, but in the prison, do you remember in that episode, uh, I think it's the second episode, um, where her prison ministry is just going dismally until this one hardened criminal comes to Christ and the whole prison basically converts. And sometimes there are just situations like that where it just takes you know, this one linchpin, this guy who kind of has all of this, or girl, who has all of this influence, when they see that person come to Christ, that's when things kind of flip around and change for the good. So as I mentioned, the meetings became too large to be held in homes anymore. But right on time, a cluster of buildings came up for sale that included a church and a schoolhouse. And the congregation that sponsored the meeting promptly bought the properties and the surrounding land and gave it to the mission. So the children had a proper school with a proper teacher, and the people were able to meet in a proper church. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. It's amazing. The ministry grew and grew to include a choir, more Bible classes, Studies in Latin and Greek and just pretty much everything. It was awesome. And I want to relate two stories from his time here as a city missionary because they are really very powerful and they're, you know, polar opposites, if you will. He writes this. An infidel, whose wife was a Roman Catholic, became unwell and gradually sank under great suffering and agony. His blasphemies against God were known and shuddered at by his neighbors. His wife pled with me to visit him. She refused at my suggestion to call her own priest, so I accompanied her at last. The man refused to hear one word about spiritual things and foamed with rage. He even spat at me. I visited the poor man daily, but his enmity to God and his sufferings together seemed to drive him mad. Towards the end, I pleaded with him then to look to the Lord Jesus and asked if I might pray with him. With all of his remaining strength, he shouted at me, "'Pray for me to the devil.' Reminding him how he had always denied that there was any devil, I suggested that he must surely believe in one now, else he would scarcely make such a request, even in mockery. In great rage he cried, I believe there is a devil, and a god, and a just god too, but I have hated him in life, and I hate him in death. And with those awful words he wriggled into eternity. But his shocking death produced a very serious impression for good especially amongst the young men in the district where his character was known. And this also reminds me of Adniram Judson. I don't know if you remember, but one of the early things that turned Adniram Judson to Christ was hearing his, you know, one of his best friends uh, die and kind of uh, scream his way into eternity. His friend was an atheist and it had, you know, such a profound effect on him as well and kind of turned him to Christ. So in contrast to that story, Peyton tells this story about a little boy who died of tuberculosis. He says this, "'John Sim, a dear little boy, was carried away by consumption, or tuberculosis. His child heart seemed to be filled with joy about seeing Jesus. His simple prattle mingled with deep questionings arrested not only his young companions, but pierced the hearts of some careless sinners who heard him, and greatly refreshed the faith of God's dear people. Shortly before his decrease, he said to his parents, "'I am going soon to be with Jesus.' But I sometimes fear I may not see you there. Why so, my child, said his weeping mother. Because, he answered, if you were set upon going to heaven and seeing Jesus there, you would pray about it and sing about it, and you would talk about Jesus to others and tell them of that happy meeting with him in glory. All this my dear Sabbath school teacher taught me, and she will meet me there. Now why did not you, my father and mother, tell me all these things about Jesus, if you were going to meet him there too? Their tears fell fast over their dying child, and he little knew in his unthinking eighth year what a message from God had pierced their souls through his innocent words. At last the child literally longed to be away, not for rest or freedom from pain. For all of that he had very little, but as he himself always put, to see Jesus. And after all, that was the wisdom of the heart. However he learned it, eternal life here or hereafter is just the vision of Jesus. Those two stories are so deeply impactful because one of them is eternity apart from God and one of them is eternity with God. And you notice how excited the little boy was to be with God and how deep down terrified, you know, the man was to meet God. He said he was hateful, but his hate was really terror at what he knew was coming. You know, in contrast, the little boy was very excited. It's all he could talk about. And he has many stories like this over his 10 years that he spent there. But over time, he felt increasingly called by God to go to the New Hebrides in the South Pacific. His childhood church had been advertising for someone to join in the work there, but they could find no one to carry it out, no one wanted to go. Now why? This is important. Because the last people who had gone there about 20 years before, I think it was about 20 years, had been killed and cannibalized as soon as they landed. And that would kind of put a damper on anyone wanting to go, I believe. But Peyton writes that he heard the Lord say to him, since none better qualified can be got, rise and offer yourself. And so he did. And no one wanted him to go. They all said, don't go there. There are heathens here. What are you doing? You have a great ministry. Everything is going so well for you. Why would you ruin it all to go overseas and be cannibalized? And so strong was the opposition, and by godly people too, that he felt as though he might actually be doing the wrong thing. And so he writes his parents to ask them their thoughts. And this is what they say in reply We feared to bias you, but now we must tell you why we praise God for the decision to which you have been led. Your father's heart was set upon being a minister, but other claims forced him to give it up. When you were given to them, your father and mother laid you upon the altar, their firstborn, to be consecrated, if God saw fit, as a missionary of the cross. And it has been their constant prayer that you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision. And we pray with all our heart that the Lord may accept your offering, long spare you, and give you many souls from the heathen world for your hire. Peyton says from that moment on, every doubt as to my path of duty forever vanished. I saw the hand of God very visibly, not only preparing me for, but now leading me to the foreign mission field. And I want to end here with one final anecdote, because if you're telling the life of Peyton, you really can't tell it without telling this story as well. There was this old man from the church that would come up to him routinely and basically try to dissuade him. And he had good reasoning. He was saying, but the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And who wouldn't be terrified of cannibals, right? So the old man was well-meaning, but eventually Peyton had enough. So he responds to him this way. Mr. Dixon, you are well advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours, in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And that was the last time the old man tried to dissuade him. We're going to leave it there for this episode. But isn't it just crazy that he's experienced all these things and he hasn't even left for the New Hebrides yet. And he still has about 40 plus years of ministry. And I mentioned earlier and kind of throughout the episode that you can just see the hand of God moving in his life and preparing him for ministry. And even Peyton himself points it out in one of these last quotes I used here. And next week, we're going to dive right into his first few years of ministry on the island of Tanna. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it with some friends so you can all listen along to the future installments of John G. Payton. As always, thanks for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.